Well, as we go through life, at various stages, different things become important to us. Um, if you can think back, like, what was important to me when I was four years old or whatever, um, I imagine it's a lot different than what's important to you now. Well, hopefully, hopefully it's not the same things. Um, Hudson, really, what's important to him is not laying on his tummy. Um, he really hates doing that, so it's important to him that I'm not on my tummy, you know, or that you're feeding me or whatever. Um, and as I grew up, uh, I spent a lot of time playing video games when I was younger because that was something um, really important to me. And then as uh, I got a little older, I started getting into other things like uh, paintball. And so I started looking through like paintball catalogs. My friends and I would sit in Spanish class, uh, and then we'd be like, okay, we have a break, and we'd look through our paintball catalogs and be like, sweet, which gun can we never afford um, to buy? Uh, and then in college, you know, as I started, well, before college, I started working at a grocery store, so earning money, you know, saving for college or buying other things became important. And then in college, all of a sudden, earning money became really important because now I have bills to pay, and, you know, and then you're interested in getting good grades and what job I, am I going to have. And what's important to me now, just like you, is very uh, different than what was important to me before because when I was 20, I wasn't thinking about, well, how do I love my wife, or how do I love my child, or how do I. Um, pay this mortgage, or how do I lead this church? None of those things were on my mind, and so the things that are important to us um, change over time. What I want us to ask together is, how does something become important to us? Um, like, what determines whether something is important to you? And so just like think about your priority list and what's ranked on there. How did those things get at the top of your priority list? How did those things get important to you? So we're going to just brainstorm a bit. What determines whether something's important to you or not? Why is the thing that's at the top of your list at the top of it? I think a lot of times because of like an experience, either with experience. that thing or something that you've had. Okay, so an experience, maybe like, um, maybe what sort of experience? What's an example? Um, I mean, like I'm thinking of your paintball, like that probably happened from like having an experience possibly oh, yeah. playing paintball, and so then that became something important. Okay, yeah, you have a good experience. Um, you could have a bad experience, maybe like, wow, when I didn't get this. Assignment done, teacher really reacted horribly, so now I really care about getting my assignments done or something. Okay. That satisfies the need. Satisfies the need, because you might be like, sleep's really important to me. Good. Yeah. That makes me feel good. <laughs> satisfies the need. How does something become important to us? Makes you happy. Makes you happy. Yeah, the more I do this, the more happy I feel. Survival? Yeah. Survival? Yeah, food is important to us because we need to survive. Helps your future. Helps your future? Yeah, you need money or get good grades for college or whatever, and it helps your future. It's been given or entrusted to us. Given or entrusted, so like responsibility or something? Or sentimental value. Yeah, or even like kids have been entrusted, you know, like, I don't know. Someone trusts us with it. Right. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Like, somebody, or I like borrowed this person's like an, car. an inheritance, right? Which is like, yeah. Uh, I need <clears throat> yeah, maybe you have a grandparent, and they're really important to you, so now you have this money, and you're like, this is really important to me, I want to use it right. to honor them. Trust it to us, okay. To have the presence of God. The what? To have the presence of God. 
So if it's something that brings God's presence in your life, or you well, feel to have God's presence all the time. Oh, you're saying that is something important to you. It's the only thing that's important. And well, that's God. a great answer. Yeah. So why is God's presence important to you? Well, uh, long ago I heard about uh, a time when uh, King David did not have that. Mm. It was terrifying. Oh, so you maybe heard a story or somebody else's experience? Right no, here. I, I didn't want to fall into the situation that we have in America. Okay. We'll put it here, like someone else's bad experience could make us know, make something else important. Well, I don't know how to write. Someone else's bad experience, and we say, wow, I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah, last call for something on the tip of somebody's tongue. You value it, so it has like high value or something. Yeah, so it's important. Um, yeah, maybe your your car is really important to you because <clears throat> you're like, this has so much value, like I need to take care of it or whatever. Right, my imaginary Porsche is very important. I know, <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> well, like, you you're value, gonna like, God, so, like, you know, getting to church on time or, like, going to church every Sunday is valuable. Mm -hmm. Or so you don't want to be known as the late person, so you make sure you're early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, <there's> maybe. <laughs> what? What other people think maybe that makes something important to us? Yeah. Uh, so if somebody else is like, other people care about how I dress, so now it's really important to me how I dress because what other people think. One more, I was gonna say, like if you have satisfies a need, but also satisfies a want. Boom. Yeah, would say teaching maybe something. Well, someone taught you because. Taught to you. You're taught to tell the truth, so telling the truth is really important. That's a good point. All right, we've got a good list. So as this evening, as we are continuing our series, uh, beginning the journey home in the book of Genesis, we're continuing with Genesis 22. And since we didn't use that as our uh, scripture passage, you can turn to that. It's on page 16 of the Black Bibles. Genesis 22 is where we'll be. And we're nearing the end of Abraham's life. We're going to do it tonight, and then next week will be the last message on Abraham. And things are just winding down to him. Um, and when we, God first spoke to Abraham in his story, um, he asked him to do something very costly. Back in Genesis 12, um, he said these words to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And so basically he says, leave everything you know, leave everything that defines you, leave everything that makes you secure, and go to this unknown place that I'm going to show to you later. And it's like, whoa, that's pretty costly to leave all those things that he knows. And, and that costly invitation also came with a great promise because God goes on in verse 2 to say, this is back in Genesis 12, by the way, and I'll make of you a great nation. This is the promise. I'll bless you, make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. So God has this costly invitation for Abraham, but he also has this great promise along with it. And with great faith, Abraham obeyed God. At the age of 75, he left his home. And he left his family. And the past 11 chapters we've been covering um, have gone over 25 years of Abraham's life, hitting you know the highlights, low points, well, I guess highlights and lowlights, highs and lows of his life. And there's been ups and downs. He's had times when he trusted God fully and times when he doubted God and just did it his own way. And the most difficult part of it all for him was how long he had to wait to 
have a son. Because Abraham promised, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Um, but Abraham had no kids, zero kids. So he doesn't even have, you know, like seed money to like start up this venture becoming a great nation. He has no kids on the way to becoming a great nation. You need people to be a great nation. And his wife, on top of that, was unable to get pregnant. And they were old. It's not like sweet. You know, we're 20. We've got a lot of road ahead of us. No, they're old. He's 75. Uh, and it's like we just, they just don't have much left uh, to go for them. And God, uh, God told him, I'm going to make you to this great nation. And in times when Abraham was struggling, God would reassure him, it's going to come true year after year. Um, but for them, month after month, year after year, and even decade after decade, the pregnancy test came back negative. What is going on? We're, God said we're going to have this kid, and we've been waiting all these years. And then finally, after 25 years of waiting, when Abraham is 100 years old and his wife is 90 years old, God uh, fulfills his promise. They have the child they longed and hoped and waited for. And God kept his word You know, 25 years later. And you think, how often do we get impatient with God after a week or even a year or you know, five years? They waited 25 years. Abraham and Sarah finally had the son to call their own. It could only be explained by the mercy and power of God. It was never, nothing short of a miracle. And this is what makes the story we're going to go over and cover today um, all that more shocking um, and also challenging. And we didn't read it beforehand because I wanted us to walk. Some of us know this story. Some of us don't know this story. And I just wanted us to walk through it and experience it with Abraham. And the big question it's going to answer is, how can God tell if he is most important to you? How can God tell if he is most important to you? How can God tell if he is most important to you? You think about our priority list. You know, how can God tell if he's number one on the priority list? And so let's walk through this story, starting in verse 1 as we answer, how is, can God tell if he is most important to you? So Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2 say this. After these things... Um, referring to the birth of Isaac, Ishmael being sent away, and this treaty made with Abimelech. So Isaac's born, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What does it mean for God to test Abraham, or what does it mean for God to test us? And it's easy to think, like, well, it's kind of cruel for God to test somebody. Like, why would he test somebody? Um, but we test people all the time. You think about it when you're hiring a babysitter. You don't just grab somebody off the street um, untested and be like, hey, you watch my kids. Like, you're going to, it's either going to be somebody you know or somebody that somebody else knows, or you know the parents, and so you're like, okay, I know how they raise this kid, and I can trust them, and then their first night babysitting is going to be a test of whether you hire them again. You know, how'd they do with the kids? Were they just staring at their phone the whole time while kids are running around and coloring on the walls? You know, that's, you're testing people all the time. And teachers are testing people, and they don't test their students in order to, um, for their students to fail. They're not like, yes, I'm going to test them, and I hope that they fail. Um, teachers desire their students to succeed, if they're a good teacher anyway. Um, they test to see what they've learned, and God tests us to see what we've learned, to see what is inside of us. A teacher tests the students to see what's inside of you, how, how much of this material has gotten in you, and God tests us to see what's inside of us. Um, specifically, he wants to see what is in our heart. And God tests Abraham um, in an extremely personal way on multiple levels. And um, just like when God called Abraham to leave his home and family, again, this request God makes of him is 
costly. And just like then, God acknowledges the cost. He says, take your son, you know, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. You know, son, only son, Isaac names him whom you love. Like, he knows, God knows what he's asking of him. And what does he want him to do? Offer him as a burnt offering. Sacrifice him. Lay him on the altar. Take his life and burn him up. Now we read that and we wonder, well, how could God ask Abraham to do such a terrible thing? How could he ask him to kill and burn up his own son as a sacrifice? And from there we might wonder, well, we might kind of get afraid. Well, could God ask me to do that? You know, what are the things that you know, are my only thing in my life that I love? Could God ask me to do something um, with that, to, to get rid of it, to sacrifice it in some way? And so we need to get clear on what exactly God is asking Abraham to do. So for Abraham, Isaac represents the promises of God. When Abraham left his homeland and his family to follow God, God promised, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you kids, and those kids are going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Um, Abraham's finally got in what he's waiting for. His hopes and dreams for a son have come true. I mean, we, well, many of us... Um, if we're married, or, and especially back in that day, it's like, we want to have kids. And Abraham wanted to have kids to pass on all of his stuff to him. So finally he got this thing. God gave him what he wanted. Isaac is the, the gift that God promised to give him. And not only this, but God told Abraham, you're going to have a great name, you're going to be a great nation, and I'm going to give you this land to call his own. And Abraham left his family and his homeland with these promises in his heart. And Isaac is the start of that great nation. It's the start of Abraham's great name. And he's the one who's going to get be there. Abraham doesn't have the land yet. He's going to be, um, through his kids, he's going to get this land in the future. And so all of God's promises are riding on this kid that God gave to Abraham. When Abraham dies, Isaac is the, the heir and the one to inherit all of God's promises to Abraham. And the test, so the test is this. Even if you can't have all these great things, Will you still follow me? Will you still obey me? And now that Abraham has Isaac, will he say, well, see you later, God. Nice knowing you. I don't really need to like, do these hard things you're asking me. I've got the thing I want. And so you know, is he going to just cut ties with him once he gets all the things he wants? And that's the test. Abraham, are you willing to continue trusting, loving, and obeying me, even if it means giving up all the other gifts I promised you? And as Abraham considers obeying God's request, um, which of these four G's, we call these the four G's, um, which are just like a summary of truths about God, um, and are a great way, you know, if you memorize these, you could, in a lot of our situations in life, a lot of our issues and struggles and, and sin comes back to one of these four things. And so as Abraham's thinking about obeying this thing that God asked him to do, which of these four G's might help him um, to do that, to obey, if he believed it about God? Gracious. God's gracious? How would that help? He doesn't have to prove himself. Yeah, it's like, you know, this. I've already got God's love. I've already got, you know, God's grace and kindness and presence. I'm not proving myself by this. Yeah. Is it possible that Abraham thought that if Isaac uh, died, that God could restore him? It's possible. That's what the book of Hebrews says, that Abraham believed God could even bring him back from the dead and says, figuratively, he did bring him back from the dead. But we'll, uh, we'll continue there later. But yeah, so he could maybe believe that could connect to God as great. You know, 
know, God is powerful enough. Even if Isaac dies, he said all the promises right on him. He's powerful enough to bring him back from the dead. So that could be, they connect well with the book of Hebrews. Any others that would help? God asked them to do this costly thing. What would, which one of these would help? God is good. He's not going to do anything wrong. Yeah. Can trust his plans. Trust what he asks us. Yeah. He's glorious and doesn't have to be afraid. Yeah. And like Nick pointed out, glorious points to, connects to God's weightiness and his importance. And so it's like, well, God's asked me to do this, and he's important to me, so I'm going to do it. And let's see what Abraham does in verse 3. Verses 3 to 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place from afar. And I'd imagine, at seeing it, maybe a pit formed in his stomach, um, of like, you know, all of a sudden, like, okay, you know, there's a little gulp there. It's almost like you have this surgery on the calendar for a month, and now the day has finally come. It's like he sees the place. He's like, okay, you know, this um, is kind of like game time, I guess. And so verse 5 then says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And all those verbs there, all the action words, are plural. And so fully written out, they would say, We will go over there. We will worship and we will come again to you. And so why does Abraham think we, him and Isaac, are going to return? Does he think God's going to call it off? Does he think a miracle will happen? And as Charles brought up, book of Hebrews says, Abraham, believe a miracle must going to be uh, about to happen here. And so we'll see what happens. So verses 6 and 7 go on and say, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And I'd imagine that that little conversation may have been one of the most gut-wrenching ones uh, in the Bible. I can think of some other ones. But you know, the son realizes, like, Hey, we're going to do an animal sacrifice. You know, Dad, where is the animal? And so he inquires, and with a somber tone, you know, I kind of imagine it, like a somber tone, maybe with a tear in his eye, Abraham expresses his faith in God and says, God himself is going to provide the lamb for burnt offering, my son. And then verse 9 completes their journey up the mountain, and when they arrive, Abraham makes all these necessary preparations for the burnt offering. And the story almost like slows to a crawl as we watch each action in slow motion, you know, three days time pass in a verse, and now, you know, how many words are dedicated to these actions, and so verses 9 through 14 just kind of really slows down. It says, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built there, built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord shall be provided. And this test, God says, was designed to see whether Abraham feared God. And, and what is the fear of God? It's one of those phrases that's used everywhere in the Bible. Um, it's very important, um, but can be hard to understand. And it doesn't mean that desire, God desires that we relate to him with this cowering, crippling fear of terror. And although it is true that when people come face to face with, with God's power and his holiness and his authority and glory, they tend to fall flat on their faces in terror. Because when Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt to Mount Sinai to speak with God, God appears to them. There's this thick cloud, it says, and there's thunder and lightning, and God speaks to them. Um, and then the people are like, um, hey, Moses, it'd be okay if you just talk to God and relay the words to us because we feel like we're going to die when he's talking. And so it's like, okay, they're not like, whoa, cool, God's presence, like take pictures with their iPhone. They're like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Like, Moses, please don't let that happen again. And so they, you know, if you've ever been close to a lightning strike or a thunder, um, like it kind of like shakes you to the core. And so it's just saying like, this is how God is manifesting his presence and is showing like, this is how um, weighty um, and amazing he is. And Jesus was God in the flesh and you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but this is how it made sense to me. When he, there's a couple times when his disciples have this, I just wet my pants moment uh, in their life because they, they're like, whoa, uh, who is this guy? And one of those is when they're in a boat um, heading across the Sea of Galilee um, and there's a storm and they're like, we're going to die. And Jesus gets up and he starts talking to the storm, telling it, hey, be calm. And that would sound crazy enough, but the craziest part is that it listens and it calms down wind's gone, the waves are gone, and then they're in the boat, and suddenly they're more afraid of the person in the boat than they were of the storm, because like, this guy just told a storm to stop it, you know, <laughs> so it's like how that's a scary moment for them. In these moments, people experience the powerful, majestic, and glorious presence of God firsthand, and in those moments, God felt very big, and those people felt very small, which isn't a bad thing, not small in terms of like, oh, you know, you're just a a little pesk or whatever, but it's just like God is big. God is the creator, um, the author of the whole universe. Um, and so he should feel big to us and we should feel small. And so fear of God means we're properly responding to who God is and who we are in relation to him. That's what fear of God is. We're properly responding to who God is and who we are in relation to him. And we won't properly relate to God unless we come to know his power and glory. And um, as most of you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, out in the country, and my dad's an avid hunter, and so we had tons of guns in our house, um, and I don't know, there's got to be like 50 guns in our house, it's crazy, um, but I never once played with a gun in a way that put somebody else in harm's way, and my sister never ever played with a gun um, that put somebody else in harm's way, and why is that? It's because my dad taught us a proper fear of guns, he taught us to respect the power of a gun. Um, because they're powerful. And when I was 12 years old, I had to go through hunter safety. And we had to go through all these ways of learning how we handle, uh, how we handle a gun, how we can lay with it, how we carry it, and how um, you know, we do everything with it. And so someone who doesn't understand and respect the power of gun isn't going to pass hunter safety because 
Um, they're not going to understand how powerful and dangerous this thing is. And so they're going to be, you know, holding the gun and swiveling, you know, and pointing it in front of people, whether they mean to or not. Or they're maybe going to be goofing around while they're holding it or not have the safety on or whatever. Um, and just the fact that they're not being as careful as they can shows that they don't have this proper fear, this proper respect um, for the power of a gun. And I grew up in the presence of dangerous life-threatening weapons my whole life. And by the time I passed Hunter Safety, I knew where the key to access all of them was. Um, but I never once took them out um, and messed around with them. Um, and it doesn't, just because they are powerful doesn't mean I was terrified of them or scared to use them or handle them. Um, but when I did, I had a proper respect, a proper fear of them because I knew how powerful they, they were. And my dad gave me access to the gun cabinet cabinet and he never would have done so if he didn't know that I respected the power of it um, and had a proper fear of it and my dad tested he tested me to see do I understand the power of this thing do I respect it and so he tested me and gave me access and the test for Abraham is whether he's come to a proper understanding of God does he know how powerful God is does he know God's authority does he know God's importance in his life his importance in the universe um, does Abraham understand that he answers to God and not the other way around. Does he understand how big God is? And you won't properly relate to a gun unless you come to know its power. And we won't properly relate to God unless we come to know his power and his authority and his majesty. Unless we see him as our king and creator, we will not relate to him rightly. And so it's interesting to think about, well, how does Abraham come to this place where he fears God, like where he has this proper relationship to God? Um, how does Abraham bring him to this place where he so trusts him and his life is so surrendered to him that he's willing to do even the most costly of actions, where he's willing to put all the thing, good things God has given him on the altar and let it be burned up, even if it's putting all the promises God gave to him you know, uh, at stake. Well, God didn't bark orders at him or beat him into submission. He didn't um, come and just intimidate him you know, and, and make Abraham cower in fear. But what did he do? He, God's been blessing Abraham. He showed him immense patience. He showed him amazing love and grace and kindness all throughout Abraham's life. Even when he was doing the silliest of things and acting foolishly, God was still protecting him, still being kind to him and showing him um, that he is going to be there for him, even when Abraham didn't deserve it. And God made all these promises and he kept his word. And so Abraham comes to this place where he's like, I have a proper understanding. Um, I'm fearing God's authority and his power, his goodness and importance because of um, how God has shown him this amazing love. And I think of Romans 2.4 that says, God leads us to repentance, to turn to him um, by his kindness. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And all this leads to Abraham's trust. He tells Isaac, the Lord will provide. Now, why is that? You know, I don't know if that's where I would have gone in that situation, but he's like, you know, Isaac, the Lord will provide. Um, but through everything Abraham's been through, the times when he tried to take things into his old hands and could have just messed the whole plan up, um, times when he was wandering and doubting, God always provided. And so he's learned, you know, God can be 100% trusted. I don't need to hold on to my life. You know, like that first scripture reading from Mark, Jesus says, if you try to hold on to your life and save it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, if you open it up to Jesus, then you will truly find it. Um, find what you're looking for. And Abraham's learned, I don't need to hold on to it. I don't need to do this my way. I don't need to hold on um, to my own sensibilities. You know, I don't need to have objections and be like, God, I don't think you have this all planned out. He's learned, no, God's got it all planned out. So I, the Lord will provide. He's going to come through. I can trust him with my life. And he knows God is good, and he knows God has loved him. So 
for the past 40 years, Abraham has come to trust God with anything, even the very promises um, that are bound up in his son um, to him. And God speaks to Abraham again in verse 15. Verse 15 says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have now withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Abraham lived at Beersheba. And these promises that God tells Abraham, if you've been following along in Genesis, none of them are new. Um, they're what God's been telling Abraham the whole time. But only this time he confirms them not just for Abraham, but for Abraham's children. Because Abraham obeyed God's voice, he says, okay, now I'm confirming these promises for your kids and onward. And Abraham heard the word of God, and he did it. And this is what um, he's commended for in our second scripture reading we did, James 2, um, that he doesn't just hear God's word, um, but he does God's word. His faith, faith in God that he talked about back in um, Genesis 15 when it says, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. And then James, the author of that letter, is saying, like, yeah, you can tell that his faith his belief at that point was real because of what he does in Genesis 22. What he does proves that his faith is genuine, um, that it's not fake, that he's not just like, okay, God, yeah, I, I believe you. Um, you know, now get off my back or give me the things you said you would give me. But you can tell it's real by what he does. He hears God's voice and obeys him. And, and why is this so important to God? Why does he respond at this point like, okay, you obeyed my voice. Now I'm going to confirm these promises again, and even for your kids because you've obeyed. And if you think about the whole story of Genesis, when we started in Genesis 1 and 2, this is the exact way God wanted us to relate to him from the beginning. He created Adam and Eve, who were supposed to live with him in this relationship where they hear his voice, and they believe it, and they obey it, um, and act accordingly. But it all goes downhill in Genesis 3, um, when things get turned around, and they stop not trusting God's voice, and they start thinking, like, maybe God doesn't have our best interests in mind. Maybe God isn't concerned with our good. And so the reason Abraham can now be a blessing to all the whole world is because he's returned to that relationship that God wants us to have at first, where we're listening to God's voice and obeying him. And that's the only way we can have um, a blessed life. We talked about how it's only under God um, that we can have all the promises that God um, wants to offer to us. And Abraham has learned to live, as we say here, a life of total surrender. Um, when we wave the white flag of surrender, we're saying, you know, I'm not fighting you anymore. I'm not doing it my way anymore. I'm not trusting myself anymore. What you say goes. When you speak, I listen and obey. If you say go, I go. If you say do something, I do it. And that's when you know, we're waving that white flag of surrender to God. So we're turning to our big question. How can God tell if he is most important to you? How can he tell if you're the most important thing, if he's the most important thing to you? And the answer is this. Instead of losing him, you'd rather lose anything else. Instead of losing him, you'd rather lose anything else. How can God tell if he's most important to you? Instead of losing him, you'd rather lose anything else. And you can, even, you can put lots of words in there. Instead of displeasing him, instead of grieving him, 
Um, instead of going life without him, you'd rather lose anything else. Like there's anything, you'd rather give up anything um, than not be following God. And Abraham is willing to lose anything, even the best gifts God had given him um, and would give him if it meant he's still walking with God. And the test for Abraham um, is to see if Abraham loves God or if he loves what God gives him. Does Abraham love the gifts that God brings to him or does he love God himself? Does he love the gifts or the giver of the gifts? And that's the question for us too. Do, do we love God or do we love what God gives us? And God is eager to give us good things. God is eager to give us gifts. But if we don't see him as the greatest gift he's ever given, um, and we're like, you know, I'd rather keep whatever it is, my house, my car, my spouse, um, and if I get to keep those things, if God's like, hey, yeah, I'm, you know, if you love those more than me, like, I'm, I'm out of the picture. And if we're like, yes, I love those more than you, like, we've got a problem, because those are the gifts he gives us, and he wants us to love him the most. And, you know, it's kind of like thinking, like, Dad, you know, Dad coming home from a business trip, um, and do the kids run and be like, yay, Daddy's home, or they say, like, what'd you bring us? You know, is that, what's the first thought in our minds? You know, we don't want to fault, you know, kids too much for that sort of thinking, but it's sort of like thinking of our relationship with God. If it's like, God, what'd you bring us? Um, what are you going to give to me? You know, I'm mad that you're not, you know, what, you didn't give, bring anything for me? Like, oh, no, I, you know, I'm not interested in you. And it's like, or do we say, like, yes, you know, we come to God as our Father, we love Him the most. And this is why suffering tests our faith, because even when God isn't giving us what we want in life, or even when God is taking away the good things in our life, will we still trust Him and love Him and fear Him? And what's most important to us, that we have God or that we have the gifts that He gives to us? Would we love God even if He wasn't saving us from hell? You know, if we weren't like, I'm so scared of hell, so I'm going to believe in God. It's like, you know, even if hell wasn't at stake, like, would we still love God and follow and obey Him? Would we love God even if we didn't get heaven? Of course, heaven is heaven because God's there. But even if we weren't like, woohoo, it's going to be, we're going to be free of suffering and we're going to have these new bodies, we're going to be a new creation, and we're, you know, there's not going to be dying or pain or suffering anymore. It's like, would we still want God, you know, with, even if we weren't getting all those benefits um, of heaven with it? So know this truth um, God is the best gift you could ever receive. God is the best gift you could ever receive. And that when we went life, did Life Explored last year, we are doing Christianity Explored this fall, last year we did Life Explored, that was what it asked. You know, what's the best gift God could ever give you? And God is the best gift you could ever receive. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news isn't like, hey, you get out of hell. Hey, you get heaven. Hey, you get forgiveness. Hey, you get righteousness. Hey, you get all these things. The good news, the gospel, is that we get God. There's all these barriers, all these walls in the way that we could never have access to him. And Jesus through what he did, tore all that down. And so now we get God. It's not like, he, you know, oh, sweet, now there's this bag of all these, you know, material things flowing onto us. It's like, no, now we get God. That's the, the best gifts we could ever give him. And God's desire is that we would be, that he would be more, the most important thing to us, more important than anything. It's so important that we, we'd be willing to lose anything rather than lose him. And, and how does God lead us to see um, him as most important? Well, like Abraham, he shows us amazing love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, that's what he asked Abraham to do. And God's amazing love for us is what leads us to live with amazing love for him. That's what First John, um, I think, 4 says, or 5 says, um, that we love because he first loved us. We would never love God. We would never want to give anything up for him unless he first loved us first and gave up um, the most important thing. I mean, he sacrificed himself on the cross for us. 
another way to ask the big question we're looking at is, you know, who are you most willing to sacrifice for? Um, how does God? And we often are most willing to sacrifice for ourselves. You know, I'd rather sacrifice um, my time or other people or money to for my own comfort, my own security, uh, my own reputation. You know, I'll put somebody else under the bus and gossip about them if it's gonna, you know, not make me look bad. Or I'm willing to stay up late, you know, to mess around. I, I don't know, watch football or whatever. But you know, I'm not willing to really stay up late or do whatever or sacrifice time for something else. But I'll sacrifice it for these other things. And or we're maybe willing to sacrifice for our jobs. Like, is that the most important thing to us? Like, I'm willing to work late, um, sacrifice my family, sacrifice my health. I'll sacrifice to that because that's the most important thing to me. Or sometimes we are willing to sacrifice for our families. And some of these things are super important, like God calls us to care for our families, but it's like, oh, you know, like that's just the most important thing to me, so I'll sacrifice other relationships, I'll sacrifice serving God or you know, whatever it is um, for those things. Um, but we love, sacri- we love God sacrificially because he first loved us sacrificially. And so there's kind of two things as we leave here. Some of us need a better understanding of God's holiness, power and authority and we that's the one place we some of us maybe need to grow in because we can take it for granted because God has every right to demand anything from us he has every right to send us to our death for our willing willful rebellion against him as our Lord and creator like he has every right to do that and if we don't understand God's power and authority we'll take his grace love and kindness for granted but on the other side, some of us need a better understanding of his grace, love, and kindness. Because without this, we'll be afraid of God in the wrong way. And we'll want to hide from him and run from him. Or we'll always just be like, you know, does he love me, does he love me, does he love me, does he love me? Well, he's already shown us his amazing love and proved his love for us in giving his own son. So we don't have to ask that. And you think about it this way. If you're caught in a huge storm... You'll be exposed to its power, the lightning, the thunder, the wind blowing you and kind of pushing you against you in places you don't want to be. And it can be quite terrifying. Like you're just, I just need to get shelter. And it's so powerful and you feel so small and it's totally in control and you can't control it. It's just controlling you and terrifying you and you're in danger. But then imagine you get to this place of self-shelter where you're totally safe and you can still... Maybe there's not even windows or walls. You're just underneath something. And you can still look out. And the storm isn't any less powerful. It isn't any less you know, awesome um, and majestic. And yet, now instead of being terrified of it and cowering and trying to find shelter, now you're standing and getting to stand in awe of it and stand in reverence of it and getting to appreciate the power and the authority um, that it would have over your life. Of like, It could just take your life and you can't do anything about it. And so instead of running in fear of it, you now have a different kind of fear. Instead of looking for safety from its power, now you can be amazed by it and appreciate it. And if we're caught in God's presence with all our sin, all our selfishness, all our lack of love for Him and our lack of love for others, we would be terrified because we'd be in grave danger because God does not allow um, anything sinful or evil in His presence. And His just judgment would stand against us. But when we trust in Jesus um, and what he did for us and the payment he made for our sins, we find ourselves in Christ. We find the shelter from the storm that would be dangerous to us, the storm of God's presence. And now we find our refuge, our shelter, um, our security in him. 
And now we can look at his power and his holiness and his justice. And we can have this fearful awe and reverence instead of trying to you know, run away from it and be scared of it. And so if you don't have an understanding of God's holiness, power, and authority, you'll take the shelter that Christ gives you for granted. You won't appreciate the safety, um, the security, and the refuge um, that it gives you. You'll just be like, yeah, you know, I'm just safe here. And sure, whatever, the storm's out there and it's not super scary. I'm just here. Um, but if we're in that situation, we won't live with thankfulness and gratitude of like, I should be out there, but God has made a refuge for me, so I'm safe. And if we don't understand his grace, love, and kindness, we'll feel like we're always caught in the dangerous storm of God's holiness and power and authority. And we'll constantly be afraid of God. And if we don't have both, it's only if we have both that we'll see God as the greatest gift um, we could ever receive. Because it's like, well, I should be you know, terrified of him, and yet... I'm safe and I can be in awe of him and reverence him. And if we don't see both, God won't be the most important to us. And the good news is that God is the most powerful and he's the most loving and gracious and kind. The one with the most power and authority is also the one um, with the most patience and the most love um, and the most mercy. And that's why God himself is the best gift he could give us. Because you don't want somebody in authority who isn't loving. Um, and that's a bad combination. But God is the most powerful, and yet he's the most loving too. And so as we live as God's family, learning to surrender all of life to him, we should be looking more and more like people who have received the greatest gift that we could ever receive. And if you think about it, what are people like who have received the best gift you know, ever? If you get a, the most awesome gift you've ever received, what, you know, what kind of feelings are happening in you? Just name a couple things quickly. Excitement. Excitement. Joy. Yeah. Joy. Gratefulness, excitement, joy, gratefulness. Yeah, we could go on. We think about the fruit of the Spirit, like first three. Love, you're going to oh my gosh, I'm, I so love this person who gave me this gift. Joy, you know, that excitement, and you're saying gratitude. Peace, like, because we're, we sometimes are always searching. Like, I was, I was so excited, you know, this is going to be, sounds so silly, I just thought of it now, but I just, I've been looking for a coat that fit my arms for like years. And my coat ran out. I finally found one on Saturday. And I was like, oh, this is so exciting. And you're like, there's this peace. Oh, I can rest. You know, and it's like, well, if we find, with God, we've like found the greatest gift in the world. So we can have this peace um, that I don't have to keep searching. Like I've already got the greatest thing that I could ever be given. And so on the other side, how much confidence and excitement would this give us in sharing the gospel with others? We're surrendering all of life to Jesus, but we're also inviting others to do the same. And we are asking people, hey, give up all your fun to follow all these stuffy old religious rules. We're inviting people to receive the greatest gift that could ever be given. And so, you know, think about the opposite of what we said. When we have the perfect gift for somebody, you know, how do you feel about giving it to them? Excited. Excited, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're the same thing. Yeah, you can make, I sometimes have joy. It's like, oh, I'm a bad gift person. So when I like, I have a hard time figuring out a gift. So it's like, oh my gosh, I found a gift. They need this. I'm excited. It happens once every five years. I'm, you know, so pumped to give it to them and see, you know, how are they going to respond to it? And so like, you know, we can have that same feeling of excitement and joy and, and like, oh, I'm going to get to offer this person the greatest gift and invite them to it, into it. And we put this, such a focus on the gospel, the good news, because we need to be constantly reminded um, that God has given us the greatest gift already. Um, but it can easily be you know, like this awesome toy, this awesome gift we got last Christmas, and, and now it's in the closet and we totally forgot about it. So we're not excited about it anymore. And one pastor, actually a local pastor, says it this way. Um, he said, some preachers and counselors 
think of yourselves. You guys, that's not just me. You guys are all preachers of the good news, and you're all counselors in the good news. Some preachers and counselors seem to think the main part of a pastor's job is telling people to behave. I think it's telling Christians how rich they are. And I just love that quote because we need to constantly be reminded of how rich we are in Christ because we so often forget it. We need to be constantly reminded of how blessed we are so that we can be a blessing. It was when Abraham became aware of, wow, the greatest blessing, I already have it. It's God himself. And it was when he finally realized that that now God says, okay, like you are going to be a blessing um, to the world. And the same is true with, with each of us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the story that can be challenging. Because you do ask much of us, and Jesus tells us, count the cost uh, before you come follow me, because I'm asking everything of you. And Father, we want to be people who come after Jesus by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. And so would you remind us again of the amazing gift you've given us um, in bringing us to yourself through your Son, um, and that we could never have done this ourselves, yet you've given it to us freely, out of your grace, out of your goodness, um, out of your power, so that we can see you as the most glorious. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.